3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago it was written, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Second Psalm. It's an old song. It's a really old song. Uh, I'll lay it out here that uh, this was a really challenging um, message to wrestle through. Uh, and so I, I'm sure that what's coming to you here is, uh, is not kind of packaged up and, and tied with a, a nice pink bow. Uh, because I'm, I've got a number of, of thoughts in, in my heart and spirit that have kind of gone, gone through the cycle over and over again multiple times. Uh, we've decided that throughout this, this season of Lent, we want to reflect on uh, the impact of, of the cross and, and what the impact of the cross is on our discipleship specifically. But this week, in the midst of that, I could not... Um, shake my mind from the subject of violence. And so, uh, so what we're going to talk about, so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And we're going to talk about violence, and we're going to talk about the cross, and we're going to talk about the war, and we're going to talk about being made in the character of Christ. Um, and these things are all connected. So as, as we lean in, um, I just want you to take a look at... Uh, at a, a passage in 2 Corinthians, uh, because it begins, as Paul is, is teaching the church, um, it begins with an understanding of what some of the impact of Christ's death was in our discipleship. So this is going to be our starting point, and then we're going to kind of backtrack a little bit. Here's what he says, since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. So, Often when we think about the impact of the cross, we think that, um, that you know, we, or we don't only think, but we, we primarily think of it as salvation, atonement for, for eternal salvation. Yes, and what we see here is there's an old life that has been died to if we enter into the death of Christ. So, so he died for everyone so that those who receive his new life would no longer live. So there's an impact on living for themselves, all right? Instead, instead of living for themselves, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So one of the first things that we lean into is if we understand the cross correctly, if we understand that Jesus died for us, then one of the results of that is going to be that we live a new and different life. Okay? So it's, it's not disconnected from the life eternal, but it's something that begins before death. Okay, we live a new and different life. We live for Christ, a different way in the world who died and was raised for us, right? So, he, so Paul writes, we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. We're, we're being made new. We're being made different. So therefore, we don't look at the world in the same way that we used to, and we don't look at people in the same way that we used to, yeah? At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. And post-resurrection, Paul's like, <laughs> guess we got that one wrong, you know, or I guess we didn't see the whole picture there. At once we thought about Jesus from merely a human point of view and look at what we see, that Jesus is the full embodiment, right, of all that God is, the book of Colossians begins with, all right? So, so how differently we know Jesus now, this means then, in light of all of this, he reiterates the first thing he said, that anyone 
who belongs to Christ has become something new, has become a new creation. There's an, the old is gone, and, and the old is not just somebody who maybe um, was experiencing the power of sin and shame and condemnation in their life, but literally who thought about all of life in a different way. That's gone, okay? A new life has begun, and all this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ, and God has now given us, God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. So in light of being made new, we are now agents of God's reconciliation in the world. Agents of God's mission to make things right between people and God, between people and one another, between people and the earth. This task of reconciling people to God's design for the world has been given to us. And this is kind of where we're going to pivot. For God was in Christ. Remember, this whole thing started about the death of Jesus, that when Jesus died. And, and the statement here in verse 19, for God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. The reason that I start with, that com with, with this reminder is to remind ourselves that when we talk about the death of Jesus as Christ followers, we are talking about something that is intended to have a profound impact on how we see the world and live now. Okay? That is absolutely important. Because here's the thing. We have to talk about violence. Violence is, um, is conversations about violence right now in our world are not going anywhere. They've intensified in our country in recent years not just these last two weeks, but in recent years. And at the same time, at this moment now, they're encircling the world in, in some new ways. And here, here's one of the things, as, I don't know, humans, maybe as people from the West, maybe as Americans, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. But at some point in the game, we learned, most of us, to accept the reality of violence. As long as one of two things happened, as long as, number one, we were distanced from it, or number two, we were the stronger one in the conflict. We accept the realities of a violent world as long as we're somewhat distanced from it or we're the stronger. That's the way our world looks at things. But Christ died for us and Christ made us new. So the challenge is, how will we look at things now? How we understand violence shapes our discipleship and our discipleship shapes how we understand violence. Here's where we get to the cross. This is why we need to talk about the cross. Our view of Jesus on the cross will determine our view of God's character, okay? And which will then determine how we live out our lives as God's people. I wonder if so often one of the reasons that we accept violence is that it's assumed that an act of divine violence was the foundation for our faith. Um, Here's what I mean. Let's, let's draw. Okay. When I talk about a, an act of divine violence fa uh, founding our faith, what I mean is that sometimes when we look at the scriptures and we just take certain things out and we don't look at the totality of the story of the New Testament, then, then what we get is an understanding of the cross and the atonement. And I'll talk through it for those that can't see it. But what we get on the cross is essentially the Father... Sending sin and violence, oh, 
Wrong one. It's supposed to be purple. There we go. The Father sending sin and violence. To the Son on the cross. In order to bring healing and salvation or rescue, whatever you want to say. So what we end up having is we say, well, Jesus had to die because God demanded justice, so God had to kill something because of the, um, because of the, uh, uh, the system um, of sacrifice that existed. So, so you can't just forgive. Something had to die. Something had to be killed. And so the father does that to his son to save the rest of us. Now, here's the thing, friends. Doesn't this give you kind of a really, like, tenuous relationship with dad? Right? You get, you get a little uncomfortable about the father because Jesus saves us from God, which is problematic. Okay? So, so if we think that the foundation of our faith is that God had to kill something in order to make this all work and forgive, then what we do is we end up thinking that God is actually had to do a violent act just in order to make things right, which means that we can then rationalize violence in our world so very easily. Because as long as it's justified, we've seen it from the origins at the beginning. Never mind the fact that actually violence, we talk about this whenever I teach on Genesis, but violence enters the world not in the origin story, but a, a generation later as a foreign substance when Cain kills, or yeah, when Cain kills Abel. But that's not today. So look at how different this is. And we're just doing just a little bit of theology here. But what we get in a passage that's so important, like 2 Corinthians 5, that says, listen, for God was in Christ. God was in Christ, not outside of Christ, in the moment of God's atonement. So... When you begin to imagine, <laughs> that's a wavy world. Um, there we go. That's the isthmus of Panama. Okay, so when you begin to imagine this in a different, a different angle, that the world's sin and violence was sent to the Son and the Father together, for the healing and salvation of the world, you get a completely different view of the character of God. Are you with me? You're tracking here what I'm saying? If, so one, one of the things that we often, we often mess up, and we miss that in the book of Acts, all of the early messages, all of the early um, evangelism that happened was about how men killed Jesus, but God raised him. We have mostly been given a theory of atonement that, that sounds like the opposite, like God killed Jesus and then... I guess God raised him, but that's not actually consistent with the story of the early, um, the early church and their understanding of the atonement. Yes, there was absolutely substitution, but we're not going to talk about that today. Absolutely, Jesus entered into a sacrificial system that he knew exactly what it would be. One sacrifice to end sacrifices, to help them understand that this was no longer needed, that God's forgiveness was available, but it was the Father and the Son together working this out. God was in Christ Here's why that matters. Um, I, well, actually, let me just share this quote from one of my um, old professors that I think is really significant that he wrote recently. The crucifixion is not what God inflicts upon Jesus in order to forgive. The crucifixion is what God in Christ endures 
as he forgives. The cross is where God absorbs sin and recycles it into forgiveness. The absorption of sin and the recycling of forgiveness, of salvation, of healing is so incredibly important to how we see things. Either God was outside of Jesus sending his punishment or in Jesus absorbing the sin of the world and ending the cycle. Here's why that's so important. Because cycles are the way the world works right now. I told you we're going to mention everything that's going on in our world. Um, I mentor a student at Aspira. He's in eighth grade now. And he doesn't talk about anything. And he brought up the war at our last session because he's thinking about it. And we got talking, and as happens sometimes, I got the opportunity to draw something on the table. Um, and so what we began talking about is something, all right, that, that's called the myth of redemptive violence. Some of you have heard this before. It's a phrase coined by an uh, academic New Testament scholar named Walter Wink. Um, but the myth of redemptive violence says this. And here's why it's a myth. Well, no, we'll talk about why it's a myth in a second. Here's what the belief is. The belief is that as long as I am the last one or the hardest one to hit, I can end violence through power. Okay? So, so you know, um, so, you know the, the reason that powerful people are often in charge is because they beat up on everybody. But if you take down the powerful person, then you can have peace. Here's the problem. The problem with things like that Jesus exposed, an eye for an eye, for example, the problem with that is that we are super forgetful. So, if... All right. If you hit me, right? Boom. Then I decide that I'm going to hit you. Boom. What happens? Do you say, oh good, now we're even. No, because you only remember the last shot taken. And so you will say that you are justified in hitting me again. And if I hit you hard enough to kill you, then my family will remember that, and they will come after you. Or their family. You get what I'm saying. I don't, know, I don't think I said it right just now. But the idea is that the cycle continues because violence begets violence. It gives birth to violence over and over again. Okay? Um, all we remember is the last hit. So it's never the last hit. So, peace does not come through violence. It never has. If it's called peace, it's a false peace. Um, what we see in the cross is a violent world spinning out of control and Jesus absorbing and responding with forgiveness by exposing the myth of redemptive violence. And he shows that power is not found in force, but in forgiveness, in restraint, and in compassion. Um, I lost my connection. Sean, can you put up Dr. King's quote, please? In, in a, the very famous quote from Dr. King, um, that is, uh, it was in one of his sermons, but it's collected in his, in his book, Strength to Love, which is a collection of his sermons. Dry, do, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence, and toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. The chain reaction of evil, hate begetting hate, wars producing more wars must be broken, or we shall be plunged into the dark abyss of annihilation. 
this is highlighted um, in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5. And what, what Dr. King is talking about there is the myth of redemptive violence. Make no mistake, it's the exact same thing, just different language around it. In, G, in, in Matthew 5, a, a verse that's often misunderstood, uh, where Jesus is teaching, and he says, you've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. All right, this isn't a readable version. This is a uh, New, Living, New Living Translation. You've heard it said, right? This is the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Now, we do two things with this passage. Number one, we ignore it because it sounds ridiculous. So that's option one, is to say, well, we can't follow everything Jesus said because there was a lot there. So you just got to pick and choose sometimes. So we just ignore how hard this sounds. But the second one is to suggest that what this is saying means that any time that someone is aggressive, the correct response is to just lay down and take it. Now, when you do some of the cultural background, and again, I'm going to refer to Walter Wink's work. Um, he does a lot of work on what's called powers and principalities. Um, and, and now a lot of scholars take a look at this in the contextualization and understand this as when Jesus says, uh, when someone hits you on the right cheek, it was a power play because nobody would hit with their left hand. The left hand was unclean. So in order to hit somebody's right cheek, this is my right, yeah, from over here, in order to hit, wait, yes, in order to slap someone on the right cheek, a slap was a sign of power. In order to, if, if you uh, required the other cheek and did not respond by cowering, but instead said, hit me on the other side, it would require a fist and not a slap. A fist is, is to fight someone as equal. And so uh, the next two examples that Jesus gives, we're not going to get into this a lot, but here's the point. Many people are looking at this and saying, not only is Jesus saying, don't respond violence with violence, but he's also saying, also assert dignity in new ways that change the narrative. Okay? Don't just get the snot beat out of you, but don't hit back either. Challenge in a creative way. Assert the dignity of what's going on. Do not let people treat you as less than human, because that's what would happen with a slap. So, in this, in this story, do not resist. The word for resist means do not offer equal and opposite force in the same way. So if someone hits you, don't hit back in the same way, but instead engage in a creative way outside of the world of violence because that's the only way the cycle will stop, okay? That's the only way the cycle will stop. This is true in life. This is true in war. Uh, there is no winner in war, only losers. Those who physically win take great losses to the mind, the spirit, and the soul. And if you don't have any friends who are veterans where you can see this, I invite you to expand your relationships. There are no winners in war. There are no winners in violence. So this is all relevant because it brings, uh, it speaks to the attitude that we bring into the conversations that are happening right now surrounding the Ukraine um, and the ones that will be happening in the coming weeks and months if the violence continues to intensify. So a big question that we probably ought to be asking is, how do we respond? That's always where we want to go. And I, I, I think that's a valid question, and I'm not sure that I'm capable of offering some really deep um, direction there. That's not particularly um, my mind because of this. Well, what, what, actually, when I say how should we respond, 
many of us immediately begin to think, well, how as Americans, right? Uh, and so that should, by the way, just reveal how much we assume that our primary identity is our national citizenship instead of our primary citizenship being that of God's kingdom and in the body of Christ um, as people of Jesus. So when we talk about moments like this, when we talk about current events, we're not talking from a political perspective. We're talking from a kingdom of God perspective, which means our goal is always to humanize the situation. Humanize the things and the people that are being dehumanized. To see things with the eyes and heart of Jesus and respond accordingly. So all the, all the talk around us for the next weeks, and it's been like this in any conflict and violence and unrest that we've had, is very, very frequently it's tactical and it's political. But we need to constantly recenter the fact that we're talking about, number one, real people during these conflicts and we're viewing everything through the lens of the crucified Christ who was reconciling the world to himself through self-giving, not through uh, the use of power. Here's the thing. I told you I was going to bounce around. Before we talk more about responses as Christians, I need to mention something else um, about the violence that we're seeing right now. Um, the aggression from Russia is, is horrific um, and should be global news as we offer support and solidarity and humanitarian aid and care to the Ukraine. But violent conflict has been happening in Syria, in Yemen, in Iraq, in Afghanistan for years, Boko Haram, in Nigeria, where uh, an entire country is being destabilized through bombs and acts of terror, in our own country in ways that are often completely overlooked and seen and, and unseen in terms of, uh, of our daily, da daily conversations. So what makes us see and take notice for so many of us of this so much? Sure, you can talk about U.S. interests, but believe me, I've done the research We've looked at global conflicts, and we have interests everywhere. We have interests everywhere. So why are so many people so deeply and publicly moved by what's happening here? I've been uncomfortable with this for the last two weeks, trying to rack my mind and understand. And so here's why. We're going to have a little, little hard conversation. Um, NBC reporter on location this week. Quote, to put it bluntly, these are not refugees from Syria. These are refugees from Ukraine. They're Christian. They're white. They're very similar. That's a direct quote. Reporter from CBS on location. This is a relatively civilized, relatively European city where you wouldn't expect that or, or hope it's going to happen. French Nation broadcast. We're talking about Europeans leaving in cars that look like ours to save their lives. BBC reporter. What's compelling is looking at them. These are prosperous middle-class people. These are not obviously refugees getting away from areas in the Middle East. They look like any European family that you might live next door to. Father, forgive us for our racism. The stories that are even coming out of the Ukraine right now where Africans and other nationalities are being denied passage on the free trains out of the country. They're being shoved off the train because of race and ethnic origin. Even in the horror of war, some victims are seen as more worthy of mercy. Father, forgive us when we decide that those who are like us are more worthy of compassion. Mercy is easier to extend to people whose lives and appearance and economics look like ours. 
that Ukraine is so worthy of our deepest compassion and solidarity, and so are all of the others who don't look as much like so many of us, or who don't live like us, or who are not economically similar to us. As disciples of Jesus, we do not rank ourselves or others as deserving or undeserving of experiencing, experiencing violence or experiencing mercy. Because someone is Middle Eastern, we do not say, well, violence is just a part of their lives. This is sinful and wrong, and we need to repent of our obsession with compassion to those who are most easily relatable. Jesus has work for us to do here, friends. <sighs> we see Jesus, by the way, noticing the different ones from him the Samaritans, the women, the Gentiles, the Romans, and he sees them as deserving of compassion, deeply deserving of compassion, worthy to receive care. Uh, but on the cross, it actually takes on a whole different level, a whole, whole different level. Um, for it was on the cross where both those who were similar to Jesus and those who were so very different from Jesus were both prayed for and lifted up. Um, it's, it's amazing, even, even though they were enemies of Jesus at the time. So this even takes it further. Can we pause for a moment and consider how radical this moment is in revealing God's heart? In Luke 23, when they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross, Jesus. And the criminals were also, and the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched, and the leaders scoffed. He saved, his, he saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. I want you to take note of the fact that when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, in the next two sentences, we get three completely different groups of people. We get the soldiers that are at his feet. We get the crowd that's looking on, and we get the leaders that are scoffing. And we are to understand that when, that when Jesus says, forgive them, he is looking and he is saying that every single one of them, even the ones doing violence and wrong to him at the time actively, are all worthy of mercy, are all worthy of forgiveness. So we're taking compassion 50 times further up the scale. We're not just saying that he's looking at people suffering and saying that they're worthy of compassion. He's saying even the people doing wrong to him, he's praying for their forgiveness. And it doesn't matter if they're the ones that are very like him or so very different from him. This is so radical. If Jesus' forgiveness extends so readily to all, how much more should our mercy, not even our forgiveness, but our mercy, be available to everyone who suffers? My friend's a pastor on the West Coast um, in L.A., and... He pastors a pretty large church, and one of the members of their church is Ukrainian, um, who still actively leads a radio uh, ministry in the Ukraine and in Russia. It's a Christian ministry. And, um, and they interviewed him last week. Um, he, was, he, lives, he lives in the U.S. now, but he, he continues to lead his business. And they interviewed him last week, and one of the things that he said was, and one of the questions asked was, what do you know about what's actually happening in Russia? And he said, my colleague and I were on the phone two hours ago just weeping together, my Russian colleague. He said, 70% of Russians oppose this war, and we are just weeping. Will we be at a spot where we can understand the humanity of the Russian people as well? 
even as we may feel like certain sanctions are necessary um, to avoid deeper loss of life? Will we be able to see and even pray for someone like Vladimir Putin who is drunk on power and violence and control? Will we be able to be the people of Jesus and not be, be uh, coerced just by the ways that the world thinks about these situations? As disciples, we humanize all people and we hope and we work for the good and the redemption and the rescue of all. So let's talk just for a moment, though, more directly about how to respond to this, um, this conflict. Um, we're a partner church with Mennonite Central Committee. That's who we made the hygiene kits for. Mennonite Central Committee began because of a need in the Ukraine-Russia area 100 years ago. So they have been deeply established and embedded there for 10 decades now. They're fully aware of the conflict. They've been in there since 2014, since the Crimean invasion. So, so, um, so they are, they're deeply embedded, and we have partners. And we are, we are a part of the family of churches that is one of the four partner churches with Mennonite Central Committee. So even though our family of churches is the Brethren in Christ, and that doesn't have Mennonite in the name, there's four Anabaptists, uh, peace, historic peace churches that are doing work together through this organization there. And so um, just uh, two days ago, uh, they, uh, they came out with, um, with a, a short video from um, one of the Christian leaders that they worked with named Maxim uh, Aliferovsky. Okay? He lives in a town called Zaporizhia, Ukraine, and with his wife Anya. And they lead New Hope Center, which is an MCC partner organization that focuses on families in crisis. They're also Mennonite brethren church planters. Um, they have continued to minister to, their to the families that they serve this week, even after the war attacks increased. So they are actually right now continuing. They haven't left. They're continuing to, to do ministry and care for people. So I wanted to show you this two-minute um, video to get a, a bit of a glimpse um, for what our Christian sisters and brothers are actually asking of us, of the body of Christ right now. We saw one of the missiles just starting and flying over us. First time in life, you know, you can't really get prepared for that. But the heart begins to react, respond to that. We don't know where it went. It was like in the sky. Uh, so, and when you hear all this, you know, explosives and shootings, uh, even if you're a safe location, uh, like nothing is happening next, next to your door, uh, it's still hard. So pray for safety, uh, pray for health. It's hard to learn how to deal with these new circumstances and the stress level. It's not easy. Uh, pray for wise decisions. As I said, we decided to stay here to uh, just keep helping the families, the church. Uh, there's probably a level to which extent we can do that. Uh, depending on the situation, we'll need to make another decision. Uh, like how long shall we stay here? Uh, right now, it's definitely yes. Uh, things can change tomorrow. So pray for wisdom. Uh, but as we stay here, pray that we will be helpful, really, uh, and can, can provide uh, leadership to our church, help to families, help to communities, whatever is needed. Yeah, pray for strength uh, in these circumstances. Thank you.
so, um, well, I'm going to hit this in a second, but in a very specific way, um, the two things that are being asked for right now, the number one thing from our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine that are uh, Christ followers is actually asking for prayer. Now, many of us can kind of scoff at that because of the thoughts and prayers movements of our politicians, right, that we often see as maybe more or less um, empty compassion. Maybe it's like feeling nice but not actually doing anything. That should be different than how we understand the role of the church when Christ followers say, please pray for us. Prayer is not inaction. It is power in the subversive way of the kingdom of God. It's not the only thing that we do, but it is power. And if we don't believe that, then we don't believe Jesus. We don't believe the kingdom of God's values. And so we do. I have, I have looked over and over around for what people are asking for among the body of Christ. And they say, please pray for us. We need strength. We need safety. Obviously, there will be times where physical um, care for victims is, is needed. And there's one thing that you can do if you would like to support. This is kind of as a church. Um, you can just go to mcc.org. The whole, the whole address is donate.mcc.org slash cause Ukraine emergency, but it's right in the middle of their, their website. So it's easy to find. Um, but what do we do? What is an appropriate response in light of a savior who is willing to die to destroy cycles of sin and violence in our world? We lament the violence. In our hearts, we learn that violence is always destructive and will always continue cycles that will never end until they are absorbed, forgiven, and finished once and for all. That's done on the cross ultimately, but we can be a part of that movement as best we can here in our world. So we lament. We pray for peace in response to what is being asked for, right? Um, we speak and behave in ways that value mercy and justice to all. <laughs> That's our pledge. I, was, I came from a kind of a weird family. We learned like an alternate pledge of allegiance in school that I quietly said, I pledge allegiance to my God and the kingdom for which he stands. Um, but I think that there is appropriateness for us to understand that in the kingdom of God, our allegiance is to actually be people of peace and justice and compassion for all. Um, and that we see that as an expression of Jesus and not an expression of allegiance to anything else because it'll always be, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it'll always be co-opted or um, there's always going to be an asterisk beside it if we do it flowing from anything else other than the values of Jesus. As opportunities arrive, we learn the stories of people. We give help wherever it might be, right? We already actually, this week, we filled out an inquiry um, of what it would look like for LifePath to support refugee families if any are displaced in our region in the coming years. Uh, what would it look like for us to help provide housing, for us to help provide assistance in whatever ways? We're just exploring these things um, in any global conflict. I don't have a list because I was working this at 5 o'clock in the morning, friends. Sorry. Um, we do what we can to oppose all forms of violence toward one another. All forms. Starting with our relationships with one another. We begin to understand that a gospel of absorbing violence and sin begins with how we treat one another. How we listen to one another. How we care for one another. How we choose not to pass judgment on one another. How we forgive one another. All of that is a part of biblical peacemaking that ends on the largest scales in the world, but also affects the smallest relationships that we have. And we don't lose our souls to the spirit of this world more than to the spirit of Christ. That's all. Um, 
it's interesting, I was just talking to, I think, Nate before this, it's interesting to talk about this kind of stuff when over, by and large, everybody in our country, like, doesn't want <laughs> violence to happen right now. Everybody's pretty much opposed. Uh, not everybody, but, but many, and certainly most Christians. But again, until we have a, a deep heart that understands how much peacemaking is central to the gospel and how much even the, the cross of Jesus is about breaking these forces that exist in our world and making a way for something new to be, to be birthed, then we won't be able to navigate very well, I think, the next season um, in, in our lives and in our country. So I'm asking you to pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, for our brothers and sisters in other areas of violence and conflict, for so many people in our own country who have experienced violence and for whom the current outpouring of compassion is traumatizing. We have a lot of friends and brothers and sisters of color in our world specifically and in our country who are saying, we've had all this violence and people are ignoring it and then it happens out here and everybody's all about it. We have to own these moments, friends. It's really hard. It's really hard conversations. But be people of prayer for those who are suffering across the board.